My name is Kurt Buchanan. I'm on staff here at the church and a privilege to be able to share the word uh, with you this morning. Uh, we are launching a Hebrew series, but as we do that, we're kind of taking this moment to pause and consider the scripture uh, before we head into Hebrews. And hopefully you'll track with us as we do. Can I ask you a question, though? Are you exhausted? Not just tired, because actually sleep is supposed to fix that. Uh, so long as you have good nutrition and a little bit of exercise in your life, sleep is the thing that's supposed to take care of tiredness. But if you're exhausted, if you are weary, that's something else. I'm wondering if you are tired of trying to be a good person. If you're a Christian, uh, let me be more specific, are you tired of church? Tired of worship? Tired of the Bible? Tired of being seen as weird and whispered about or ridiculed by society because of your faith? Are you tired of the spiritual struggle? Tired of trying to keep your prayer life going? Bored with it all? Tired even of Jesus? Are you having a hard time even paying attention right now? Are you feeling weak in your faith? If that's you, stick with me today. And in fact, stick with us all through this summer because that's exactly how the congregation in Hebrews felt. They needed to renew and rebuild their faith. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is the sermon that addresses all of these realities. And it goes about it in an interesting way. It is both tender and harsh. To tackle weakness, the author prescribes strength training. If you want to put on muscle, you have to eat more and lift heavy, they say. So this author takes this group of people deep into the scriptures and asks them to do some heavy thinking. Despite their exhaustion, the author knows that Jesus and the scripture are intertwined and that biblical literacy and the hard work of theology lead to a life-changing experience with Jesus. And through that, we begin to have a resilient faith, a resilient, abundant life. We're going to take the next 10 weeks to go through the book of Hebrews, section by section, and allow the word to speak to us. But we have to pause here. Actually, you know what? Can I invite you, as we do Hebrews, can I invite you to read along with us. Um, how many of you use the YouVersion Bible app on your phone? Um, okay, yeah, again, that counts. Using a hard copy is great, but hey, uh, if you have your phone with you all the time, you can go to YouVersion, open up that app, and uh, read along. And uh, it also has some helps in there, like a reading plan, which you can you know, have regular reminders about reading through certain sections. It tracks how far you've made it so far. And actually, there's ways that you can participate with your friends. If they also use, use the YouVersion Bible app, you can do go through a plan together, share comments and ideas, and be praying for one another as you go on that journey. Uh, again, if you want to, again, just get a hard copy of the Bible, put it on your kitchen table, and you can read along with us this summer as we go through Hebrews. But if you want to, you can participate with us uh, through Hebrews. There's a variety of plans on version, but if you look for Hebrews, Jesus is better, 
you'll be able to find a plan that we're all kind of reading through. And that plan is put together by the Bible Project, which many of you would be familiar with. Uh, oftentimes when we're going through a book of the Bible here at Hillcrest, we'll show one of their videos because they do a great job at giving you an overview about what the various books in the Bible are about uh, through some graphics that are helpful for those of you who are visual learners. And so this uh, Bible reading plan is put together by them and includes a few other videos as well uh, to kind of uh, keep you in track and invested in Hebrews as we go. In fact, right now, if you have your phone, if you've got version, you can find that plan, Hebrews, Jesus is Better, and sign up for that plan and friend a few people if you want to do that with some of them. Don't friend everybody you know at Hillcrest, just people who you actually know. That would be best. While we do that, we're going to take a look at the Bible Project's overview of the book of Hebrews. The Letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God, where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians that's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. 
In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, 
This final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. Okay, well, I encourage you again start reading through uh, Hebrews. Uh, We're going to be there again for the next number of weeks. Uh, But here as we launch into this series, we're actually going to take a a moment to consider the scripture and Jesus and how he related um, to it, which again becomes very critical for reading through Hebrews. uh, Like the video was kind of demonstrating, there's lots of Old Testament scriptures that are being referenced in the New Testament and back and forth. And again, much of the New Testament has to do with the relationship that Christians, believers, are supposed to have to the Old Testament law, the various traditions, and all kinds of things. Okay, and so we're going to consider the scripture here this morning as a primer for getting into the book of Hebrews. I'm so excited to dive into this book with you. And we've got a lot of fantastic preachers that are going to be joining us over the summer. You don't want to miss, if you're away, you know, subscribe to the podcast, don't miss it. But before we get to, well, we want to look at the way that Jesus viewed the scriptures. Uh, Did he affirm them or not? How did he live in light of them? Uh, And all of these quotes throughout the scriptures, how are we supposed to, as Christians, deal with those? So Christians often don't understand the scriptures. And what they do often understand, they don't put into practice. And even there's some people who would call themselves Christians who kind of have, want to have nothing to do with biblical teaching. They take it with a grain of salt. And uh, they want Jesus for salvation, perhaps, but they're not interested in following or submitting to the Scripture. The reason we have to start with this understanding of how did Jesus understand the Scripture Uh, Because, again, Hebrews is filled with it. The whole New Testament is filled with it. And we have to figure out how we're supposed to relate to it. Because if Jesus said that this was the word of God, then people who follow Jesus have to assume that it is to be the word of God to them. Okay? So where do you stand when it comes to the Bible? Is it God's word to you? Do you understand how to apply that word to your life? And do you apply its truth and teaching to your life? Does it impact how you think about and act in the world? Or is it the other way around? Does the world impact how you think about the Bible? The best place to start 
is looking at Jesus. Okay, after all, Christians are supposed to follow him, not just follow the Bible. Our starting place is Jesus. It's not semantics to say that, even though much we learn about Jesus is found in the Bible, I believe we are supposed to start with him, that he's the key to understanding the scriptures. Okay, so the scripture reading from this week was from Luke. It's the last chapter in Luke's gospel, which is a very detailed gospel or account of Jesus' life. And uh, this chapter starts with, again, Jesus being resurrected from the dead. The women discover the empty tomb. They meet angels. Peter and John go and explore what is all this. And they wonder, what does this all mean? And then, kind of for the last chapter, you know, of all the things that they could have written about Jesus, for the last chapter in his gospel, there's a huge chunk of time spent on these two guys meeting Jesus and taking a walk to a little village called Emmaus. Uh, the resurrected Jesus, he approaches these two disciples, but they're kept from recognizing him. That's curious, but we don't have time to dig into that today. Jesus asks a few questions. They start to talk. And then, as they've shared what they're thinking about, what they're wrestling with, he speaks to them out of the scripture. So if we return to Luke 20, uh, to verses uh, 25 and 20, to 27 from Luke chapter 24, it says this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. There's a lot of misconceptions about the Bible, and we don't have time to go into all of that today. Uh, people think it's a hoax, it's unreliable, it's inconsistent, that it's been changed and altered over time, that it's filled with outdated, misleading information, hate speech, and more. And if that's you, there are a number of resources that I'd recommend for you if you want to pursue answers to your questions. But I often find that people with strong objection, objections to the Bible are largely unwilling to explore the answers that are available to their questions. Now, there are things that we will maybe never know about God, questions that we may have un leaved, left unanswered. But there are a lot of answers that we can find, a lot of questions that we can find answers for. Are you willing to pursue the answers to the questions that you have? Alpha is a program here that we have at the church, and it's a great way to introduce people to Christianity. Uh, and in the course, they do a great job of introducing people to the Bible. How did it come together? You know, why are we supposed to read it? How are we supposed to read it? Those kind of things. What is it? And uh, there's one quote that often stands out to me going through the course. And it's from uh, this guy, F.J.A. Hort. And he's one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism. That's the area of study that addresses things like its reliability and accuracy, you know, if it's changing over time, etc. Hort said this, In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writing. If you think the Bible is unreliable as an ancient text and subject to manipulation over time and not having supporting evidence, 
that's simply not true. I've heard well-educated people suggest that often, but they don't have any sources. In fact, they're quoting hearsay or popular opinion rather than a reliable um, subject or, or a source on the subject like Hort, who's an expert in textual criticism. See, the reality is the Bible is the most reliable ancient document that we actually have. It has no other competitors. It's become the standard, actually, by which other ancient documents are measured for their accuracy and authenticity. The hardest part to swallow for most most people, I believe, is that even though it's the most reliable ancient document we have, by all standards, it makes outrageous claims. An all-knowing, all-loving Powerful God, creator. There's the fall of humanity, a sovereign plan, a Messiah, salvation for all people, and eternal abundant life. That's what people find hard to believe, and they often dismiss the Bible as a credible source for history, and they imagine conspiracies about how it came together. Now, we don't have time to go further into it here. If you have your doubts about how the biblical text came together, you should try Alpha. We launch again in September, and we'd love to have you there as a part of the conversation. We can explore that together. Again, our main aim today is to understand how Jesus viewed the Scriptures and related to the Scriptures. Luke 24, 27, he said, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now Moses and the prophets sum up a huge chunk in the Bible. Not all, but a huge chunk in the Bible. The only thing that would be perhaps left out, you could say the New Testament, when he was talking about this, the New Testament didn't exist. And, or the Psalms, he doesn't specifically reference those. Though there's, there are other parts where Jesus talks about the Psalms, what was read in the Psalms, as if it was him speaking or it was speaking about him, as if it was even prophecy about him. We see that through the Psalms. So you could say in other parts of the scripture, Jesus affirmed the Psalms. And he says the whole thing is about him. Now the New Testament, again, didn't exist at this point, yet we know that the New Testament is filled with his life and his teaching, uh, the teaching of the apostles as they taught the emerging church how to live in light of who Jesus was, what he taught, what he has done. It's also all about him. Another thing that we look at in Alpha is Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Uh, These are the things that are said about Jesus through the whole Old Testament that were fulfilled by the life that he lived. Where he was born, the exact manner of his death and burial, they were all written about before he was born. No one else in history has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, 29 of them in a single day. Jesus explained to these disciples on the road to Emmaus that it was all about him. He doesn't specifically say, again, the Psalms, uh, but he references and says, all of this scripture is about me. See, he affirms every part of the Old Testament scripture and explains it's about him. And this, I believe, is critical for our understanding of the scriptures. See, many people study the Bible or study the Old Testament, but they don't have the cipher or the key or the lens 
to truly understand it. See, Jesus' disciples knew the scriptures well, but only when they had an encounter with the risen Lord, with the risen Jesus, were they able to fully understand it. The Holy Spirit was able to show them more about it than they first understood. In fact, much of the New Testament is written to help people understand how they should relate to the Old Testament. The New Testament writers always come back to Jesus as the starting place in order to fully understand the plan and purpose of the Old Testament. He is the starting place. He is the key to understanding the scripture. So, he said it was all about him. It seems to be that way when you look at all of the prophecies throughout it. Beyond that, Jesus had an incredible commitment to seeing the scriptures fulfilled. In fact, all through, if you look at even just the passion of the Christ through from when he was uh, on trial through to when he was crucified. If you look at that, um, you see that he even demonstrates that he could have the power to do it a different way, but he chooses to fulfill the scripture. Matthew 26, this is uh, verse 50, 50 to 54. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that one, uh, but with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. He drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Again, quoting, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. And he says this, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? Let's say it must happen this way. Uh, John 19, verse 28 says this, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Uh, Further in chapter 19 of John, in verse 36, These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Again, talking about the manner in which Jesus was going to die. Then later, John 19, or uh, in Earlier in verse 24, it says, let's not tear it. They were talking about his garments. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled. All through um, this account of Jesus' um, trial, his torture, his death, um, were all of these ways in which um, scripture was being fulfilled. And you see that Jesus was committed to it, even though he could call and there would be these angels that would show up. It could go differently, but instead you see him surrendering to the scripture. Um, we won't look at all of those uh, verses. There's kind of too many to discuss this morning. But Jesus was thirsty to fulfill scripture. He was that committed. He's, he didn't just say it, but or he would have been lying if he wasn't thirsty, but he was thirsty. He became thirsty to fulfill scripture. That's how important it was. In fact, or earlier, uh, as he's carrying the cross, he becomes too um, weak. He's unable to do it. They bring in another person to help carry the cross. And as he's stumbling and unable to walk, he quotes from Hosea. When you trip and when you're stumbling, do you quote from Hosea? <laughs> or do you say other things? He was so committed to the scriptures. When it came to his life, even his death, he chose the scripture. When he faced Satan in the desert, he only spoke scripture. He came to fulfill the scripture down to every last letter. For homework, I'd encourage you to do um, 
just a simple search in any kind of Bible software program or even on the internet, if you search for the scripture being fulfilled, uh, you'll be encouraged. Jesus said the scripture was about him. He was committed to fulfilling it. He was quoting it all the time. But we even miss actually some of these quotes because we often blow past them. How do these quotes work? How are they supposed to operate for us as we approach the scripture? See, the New Testament has Old Testament quotes all throughout it. And Hebrews is going to be a great example of that. You know, the guy in the video said it's going to be every other sentence, (laughs) nearly. Most Bibles have cross-references. This is a list of other parts of the Bible that are being quoted or referenced in some way. But in Jesus' day, there weren't chapter and verse markers throughout the text like we have today. Uh, For example, today, if we were, you know, doing a, uh, a message about humility, we might reference Philippians chapter 2. For those of you who know that text, that whole text would come to mind. You'd be mindful of the song or poem that's held in there about Jesus and his choice for humility and how we should also have humility like him. So just saying Philippians chapter 2 brings up all of that for the people who are familiar with that part of the text. It was the same way, but instead of using chapter and verse markers, they would simply quote the first verse of a whole section from the Bible or from the Old Testament. So they would quote that one verse, but it wasn't just only that verse that they were really meaning to use, but they were trying to bring to mind all of those verses, that whole context, all that was going on, all of the history, all that God had done, and they're bringing all of that to light. And sometimes we miss that because we don't know the Old Testament scriptures as good as we should, or don't pursue it when there's a cross-reference there, when it's a quote that's referenced. You know, we don't do like, again, what they were recommending from the Bible Project, to go back to that particular part of the Bible, to read, to understand, to gain more insight. For example, again, sticking with just looking at Jesus on the cross and how much scripture was present there. When he's on the cross, and he says in Luke 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting from all of Psalm 31, which ends with verse 24. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. He's not just saying, I give up. He's saying, be strong and take heart. It's all of it coming together. And sometimes we miss it. Or Matthew 27, verse 46, he quotes from Psalm 22, and he says this, which you'll all recognize. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, he's quoting from Psalm 22. And again, he's referring to all of the text there, all of the scripture that is there in that passage And again, you'd see in that Psalm 22, 24, it says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Or later in verse 27, All of the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of all the nations will bow down before him. Verse 31, They will proclaim his righteousness, Declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. See, as much as he might be saying, I am experiencing forsakenness, he's also saying, it is accomplished. It is finished. And he's meditating on those people yet unborn who would experience the free gift of his righteousness. When he quoted Psalm 22, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He had you on his mind. Let that sink for a minute. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. As he's there on the cross and suffering, he is meditating on scripture. It is flowing out of him as he speaks, when he trips, when he stumbles. If we want to get the most out of Hebrews, um, if we want to get the most out of the New Testament, we have to go searching through all of the scriptures And I'm so glad that Hillcrest is a place where we make the scripture such a priority. Every week, um, coming to the text and allowing it to speak to us. So what's your view of the Bible? Is it just history or poetry, proverbs to learn from, or is it all about Jesus? Do you take the scripture seriously? Seriously, like it's the voice and sovereign will of God. Is it your source for like what like it was for Jesus? Does the scripture come out of your mouth when you stumble, when you're weak, when you're feeling frail, fragile, when you're needing help? What are you facing today? Have you searched the scriptures about it? Do you have an answer from the scriptures? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus talks about temptation. That's a daily prayer, by the way, something you can pray every day. Each of us will face temptation on a daily basis throughout our lives. Are you prepared to face the devil armed with the scriptures? And are you seeing the beauty and majesty of Jesus through the scriptures that leads to passionate worship? See, if you want to renew and rebuild your faith, if you're in that same place as this audience in Hebrews. Maybe you need to take a moment now, just in silent prayer, to renew your commitment to Jesus and to the scriptures that are all about him. See, they are intertwined. You can say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. And so, I will also submit to your Word, and I will search your word so that I can know you more. Here's two very practical uh, ways to put more Bible in, in, on the menu in your life. Uh, make reading the Bible easier. Okay? Get the app. If you don't have the app, get the app. Then it's with you wherever you go on your smartphone. Phone. Sign up for a reading plan so that you can track your progress. Did you know that there's something like 200 and some employees that work for Version. It's a huge operation, all funded by a church down in the States who wanted to give it to the world as a gift. And they work hard to help people build better habits in reading the Bible. So even though a hard copy is great, or having a study Bible or something else, there are people that are working hard all the time to help you get more Bible. And so that app is a great opportunity for you to Use that. Allow it to help you. Make it easy. Get the app. Sign up for a plan. Do a plan together with someone else. Try reading the Bible every day. Try reading it in the morning and in the evening so that it frames how you start your day and how you end your day. So that's it. Make the Bible easier to read. If you want to use a hard copy, put it on your kitchen table. It will remind you every time you sit down to eat that it's there for you, that you can feed your soul. 
Another thing, another, this is simple. Prioritize church. Each week at Hillcrest, we focus on what the scripture says and how we should live in light of it. We're not just trying to give you pro tips for a better life. We're trying to help you see Jesus more clearly by taking you into the scripture. So renew your commitment to being here. Whether you're joining us online or whether you're here in-house, be present while you're with us. See, some of you have been going to church for a long time, but it's been a long time since you've actually heard a sermon to let it sink in. Maybe you need to be engaged when it's time for a sermon to focus somehow. Take notes. Search the scriptures like the Bereans. Paul was trying to teach in Berea to a group of people who were considering maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And so they went searching through all of the scriptures to see if it was what Paul was saying was true. Dig through the scriptures. Participate with us as we go through the scripture. Now, if you've never made a commitment to Jesus, um, perhaps you're hearing about this and it's, you've not made a commitment, but you're feeling drawn in to make a commitment to him, to make him your Lord and Savior. You can pray a simple prayer with me right now. I'd love to lead you. Dear Father, thank you that you love me, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in In Jesus, as my Lord and Savior, help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you, uh, as we begin through this Hebrews study, um, to stick with us, to be present with us. If you're traveling or away, again, podcast or YouTube or something like that, catch up on what you've missed. Don't miss out on Hebrews Get into the actual book, read through it, and study it. You will get so much out of it. You will be glad that you did. I'd like to take a moment just here at the end. It's kind of funny to launch a a series on Hebrews and actually not look at much of the text from Hebrews at all. But I believe we need to take this moment to pause and reflect as we head into a book that's filled with tons of Scripture that, yes, He is our Lord and Savior, And his word to us should have the same kind of weight that he gave it in our own lives. So let me pray for us as we close for today. And then I want you to stick with us. Uh, We've got a video we want to show for Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of you fathers and those of you who are celebrating. Let me take a minute and just pray for you and then stick around and uh, watch this video. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I pray that every person here who's watching would know that Jesus and the scripture are intertwined. And Father, I pray that as we try to read the Bible more, as we do the hard work of theology, that through it we'd have a radical encounter and experience with you. And Father, I pray that through that encounter with you, um, we would become a people who are renewed and rebuilt, that we would become people with a resilient faith who would live resilient, abundant lives. In your name we pray. Amen.